Um, yeah, we'll be in Mark chapter 15, verses 40 to 16, verse 8. So if you would read with me. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, of, uh, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already, uh, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen, linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath has, was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had, had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and, aston for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word, thankful for this opportunity this morning to um, celebrate the risen Christ, um, to conclude the, uh, our time in, in Mark's gospel, and, and to see what began um, with a ministry of preaching the fulfillment had come, and that the kingdom of God was present, and that we ought to repent and believe, for to come to this end where you have given your life for us on a cross and risen from the dead, defeating the grave. And so God, we thank you for this time to reflect on this passage and, and ask that you would challenge our hearts and encourage us from this text to cling closely to you, to continue to strive to follow you and trust you with all of our life. We thank you for this time you've given us. Thank you for those that you've gathered here this morning. Um, may your gospel take deep root inside of us. May it change us. May it resurrect us. May it make us new again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, this, is the, this is the final sandwich. It's the last sandwich of Mark. Oh. Yep, it's the last sandwich, guys. We've, we've gone through. What's that? I don't that. It's not the best sandwich. It's a public sub. Oh. It's a pub sub. How can you, how can you say that? Oh, stop, stop. No, no words from Jose. No words from Jose about the sandwich. You second that it's the best, or you second that you agree with Jose? Ah, get out of here. Yeah, whatever, 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 whatever. What? Listen, I'm just telling you, who, who has more locations with this good of a sub? 
Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. We'll just leave that there. Uh, so, uh, th- there are five. Apparently, a- according to Public's blog, there are five sub sandwiches that you should definitely try. So I'm, I'm by raise of hands, we're gonna see who's tried these subs. Okay. The ultimate sub. Who's had the ultimate sub? Yeah. Ultimate sub. Okay. Uh, chicken tender sub. Yep. No. Really? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, the chicken cordon bleu sub. I haven't had that one. That sounds great. How was it? Right? Okay. Uh, the Italian. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Fan- even, even Marcus has had the Italian sub. Uh, and the Havana Bold. Anybody? That's your favorite? Okay. Havana Bold. All right. There you go. I've never had that one either. So. Um, all right, so, so today is the last sandwich, and you know, as you'll notice with the sandwiches Mark provides us, there's, there's two narratives that are happening. There's a narrative that starts, there's a narrative that's inserted, and then the first narrative is concluded, so the bread pieces, right? Uh, so today, being the last, actually I'll talk to this a little bit, uh, a little bit later, we actually stop at verse 8. You're going to notice, we're going to stop at verse 8. Um, there's a lot to talk about with verses 9 to 20. I'm going to note that later, but this is kind of the end of Mark's gospel as we have it, um, and I'll, again, I'll explain that a little bit more uh, later on. So starting in, in the first piece of bread, right, um, verses 40 and 41, we see the narrative of the women looking on from a distance. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from the distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Um, so we get this first description of the ladies that were there at the time. And, and basically during crucifixion, uh, generally the women would stay away because it's like gross. And they wanted to keep them you know, clean and, and stay, stay away from what was happening. We, we see some exceptions, obviously when Jesus is on the cross and talking to his mother uh, down below. But it was rare for the women to be present for the crucifixion, for the flogging, for these kind of things. And so we have uh, this group of women kind of sitting back. And so from beyond are watching the scene play out uh, ahead of them. And I'm not sure exactly like what the geography looked at, looked like for where they were. But basically, there is in the distance, there are some women looking down at Calvary or looking up, up toward Calvary, whatever it may be. Uh, and they're watching what is about to occur with Jesus' body and where it goes um, because their desire is to prepare the body for burial to continue, to the, continue the process of anointing uh, uh, the body of Jesus. But it's late, so we're in kind of a time crunch here. Okay? So Jesus has died uh, at, at kind of the midday Friday, which is coming up to Sabbath. And so there's actually a small amount of time between when Sabbath begins and, and when Jesus has died. So we have this start of the, uh, of the passage showing uh, this group of women, and it describes this women in this way, that these were women that had followed him and that had ministered to him. It Actually, in, in Mark, and I, I'm not sure if this is in the, uh, true of the other Gospels or not also, but this word to minister to Jesus is only used of one other being ever, and that's the angels that ministered to Jesus while he was tempted. So these women were following Jesus, but also taking care of him and making sure his needs were taken care of and uh, maybe you know, just providing hospitality to him or, or whatever it may be. Uh, these women were ministering to him. And you can imagine 
the scene, it, you know, just sorry to be very stereotypical or whatever, but uh, we've seen the description from Mark very clearly that the men were very caught up with where their position of authority was going to be in the kingdom of God that was getting expressed on earth through Jesus the Messiah, right? They wanted to know who was second in line, who was going to sit next to Jesus, who was going to have the power. That's what the men were caught up in. They were caught up in the earthly, uh, uh, momentary um, expression of the kingdom of God and where they might be seated in that. But this group of women was just willing to serve, willing to provide hospitality to the Messiah. They weren't jockeying for position. They were simply there to serve and minister unto the Lord likened to angels as the only ones that would minister to him and actually not worry about what they're getting out of it, but rather just serve the Messiah. Too often, we saw Peter and James and John go, okay, I'm the next, I'm the next in authority, and when you, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go to war with you and all these kind of things, right? Their heart was on the kingdom that is present. The heart of these women were on just serving the Messiah and whatever may come. We saw many times throughout Mark that it was the ladies that caught it, that were listening, right? It was Mary Magdalene that knew, oh, he's going to burial. We need to anoint him for burial. That's what's happening right here. When everybody else around was looking for how the kingdom of God was going to express and how, when we were going to go fight against Rome, Mary saw that the time of his death was at hand and brought forth a year's wages worth of anointment and pour it on Jesus. She knew that what he said was that he was going to die. They were listening. They were following. They were ministering unto Jesus. The story of the women gets interrupted in verses 42 um, down to 47, where it says this, and, and then evening, when evening came, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, was also looking himself for the kingdom of God. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already, and summoning the centurion, he asked whether he, had, he was dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph, in bought a linen shroud, take, took him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So we're interrupted in this story by Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea coming to Pilate and saying, I, I want to take the body. Um, we, you know, as, as Jews, we desire to take the body off of the crucifix if they're, if they're placed up there. Uh, we don't let them stay until, until they rot, which is kind of normal practice for a, a, a person in Rome under crucifixion, is for them just to be hung there until they decayed. Okay? But an exception was made in Israel for respect of religious tradition in this regard, which is like, how do you respect religious tradition in execution? But anyway, it was allowed right, for the Jews to take down any prisoners that were crucified. And so Joseph goes forward and takes the body, approaches Pilate, and is cognizant of the time of Sabbath coming and goes to Pilate and asks to have the corpse. So my question when I uh, read through this was, who is Joseph, right? Like, we don't have much to go on him other than that, that what we've got right here, right? Joseph of Arimathea. And 
Uh, so there's a couple things I want to point out. First is this. When it says Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, we have to ask the question, what council was he a part of? And the only council we've been talking about in Mark is the council of the Sanhedrin. And so Joseph of Arimathea is one of those that was in the Sanhedrin who, who prosecuted Jesus, who, who made uh, claims against Jesus, who, uh, who, who sent him to be crucified, who, when he was uh, accused of blasphemy, began hitting him with stones. He was part of that same, very same group, watching all those things. He, he also was there when Peter was there watching Jesus in his trial. He was there too. He's part of this council that is gathered against Jesus. This is Joseph of Arimathea, one of the members of the council. Mark records that Joseph was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. In all this happening, Joseph is, is looking for what the kingdom of God is. Looking, is, is it Jesus? Is this him? He's waiting for the kingdom of God. And he took the courage to go to Pilate after Jesus was crucified and be the one to go to buy clothes, to secure a grave, and to approach Pilate and say, I will take the corpse. Pilate is actually surprised that Jesus has already died and, um, and goes and checks on that, makes sure that that's the case, and, and then Joseph is able to take, uh, take Jesus off of the cross and place him in the grave. Uh, this process of putting a body in a grave, this is just normal process for, uh, for taking care of a body in, in a Jewish tradition. And so there'd be these carved out ancestral graves uh, that you know, were, were set aside for a family, and all your family members would be buried in this one grave. Uh, they'd be placed on kind of shelves okay, until the body decays, and then their bones would then be placed in the middle of the cave once the like, flesh is all gone. They'd move the bones down. And so there's this constant uh, process of keeping that grave uh, smelling okay, okay? So when we're bringing in anointment and all this kind of thing, this isn't like the perfectly sealed situation, okay? We put a big rock in front of a hole, okay? We don't have rubber gaskets, okay, to keep smells inside. Like, we're not, we're not, not at that stage of in, enclosing things yet, okay? Um, and so smells protrude from graves. And so there was a constant process while the decaying was happening of bringing in fresh-smelling things, placing it on the body, making sure that the smell was somewhat under control during the decomposition. So this whole process is normal, okay? Joseph has taken him and places him in the grave. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says this, When the Sabbath had passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. They also have, have waited for the Sabbath. Sabbath has passed, okay? Um, so all of Saturday has gone by, and they come back at the very first opportunity on Sunday morning um, to anoint Jesus. Very early, first day of the week, when the sun had risen. They went to the tomb, and they said to one another as they're going, who will roll away the stone from, uh, for us from the entrance of the tomb? Thinking practically, going, oh, it's just us ladies. How are we going to get this rock off the tomb? What's going what's to happen? 
And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And this young man said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And the women, when they went out, they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. One of the twists in, uh, in this is that the women had been listening all along to everything that, it, that Jesus had said. They, they even knew that he was, he was going to be, he's going to die. They were ready for his death. But what's interesting is that they actually weren't ready for his resurrection. They weren't, they were surprised by this. They were amazed by this. They were astonished. They were prepared to continue the burial and anointing process for him. They were going to continue that process, take care of his body. He'd been there for three days at this point. So they're going, okay, resurrection, what does that mean? Rise the third day. We don't know. They're still thinking about the, the practical aspects of how are we going to get this rock out of the way, right? The women are the ones that are surprised for the first time in the whole book. The women got caught off guard. It should say something to us throughout Mark's gospel that all along they've been tracking with Jesus, right? But even those who were tracking with Jesus missed it at the resurrection. They didn't expect what would actually happen, that Jesus actually meant that he would come out of the grave and rise from the dead. They were surprised. It says they were astonished and trembling had seized them. They couldn't even say anything to anybody because they were afraid of what, who knows, what they might think, what they might say about them, right? So that is actually where Mark stops writing, which is very abrupt. Okay, and so I'm going to take just a, just a minute to explain uh, why we think that's the end of Mark's recording and that we shouldn't continue on in reading through verses 9 to 20. There's some things to say about 9 to 20, the end of the chapter, but we think that verse 8 is the end of Mark recording his gospel. Um, the next section, again, verses 9 to 20, is very likely not original to Mark himself. The the style is disjointed. There's an abrupt shift from this story about the women uh, discovering an empty tomb and running away with a disposition that's different than they've ever had uh, to these kind of uh, like off-the-hip expressions of resurrection accounts, okay? It's basically just from 9 to 20. It's just this list of how other people saw Jesus raised, the narrative structure that, that Mark has been, been carrying about is just interrupted by a bullet point list of people that have seen Jesus resurrected. So this tone shift is there. Uh, the, the, how the, the resolution of how these women went from being in dismay and afraid and actually going to communicate to the, to the disciples of Jesus' resurrection um, is like lost. We don't get to see that kind of transition. Um, and so it's clearly, it's clear that some sort of attempt was made to um, complete what Mark had left undone. 
And now, that may sound weird, but I'm just pointing out what's in your Bibles, right? There's brackets around this text, and it says some manuscripts have this and some manuscripts don't. And there's a reason for that that's good, okay? What we really think happened is that Mark is writing a gospel. He's trying to carefully write this gospel and send it back to the people in Rome and say, hey, this is what happened. Turns out, in process of writing, you can die. You can die, right? And our thought with Mark is that he passed away before he was actually able to conclude how he was going to wrap this up, right? How he was going to end his telling of the gospel. So the best conclusion we can come to is that he passed away, and someone sent the letter on his behalf and said, okay, this is, this is Mark's letter, here it is. And for the most part, our manuscripts indicate that it ends at verse 8. But some have added to it and said, okay, well, like, this is kind of weird how it ends. Let's just make sure everybody gets the rest of the story, right? Like, he rose from the dead, and he appeared to all these people. Uh, and it sort of mimics, actually, what other people said. Most of the whole text, verses 9 to 20, is actually retelling what other Gospels also say. So, Matthew uh, records some of these sightings. Luke records some of these sightings. Um, and there's only a couple things that we need to point out that aren't referenced anywhere else uh, very clearly. And so the first is this, that the, the expression of Jesus coming back to rebuke the disciples for their unbelief, we just don't have that anywhere else to go like, okay, where is that? And the second is uh, the prophecy that those who believe will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly po poison, it will not hurt them. Okay? Both of these things aren't actually problems for us. Um, in, in any way. It's not like it changes the theological thrust of the Gospels in any, any clear way. Um, the rebuke of the disciples, I mean, yeah, right? Like, the disciples are doofuses, okay? Like, they're constantly missing it over and over again. They should be rebuked, right? Like, that's probably expected that maybe, you know, maybe we would rebuke them for not believing. Um, it just doesn't feel like Mark's style. Uh, the prophecy of those who will believe picking up serpents with their hands and casting out demons and and uh, drinking deadly poison in these things. Again, we don't have reference for any believers taking deadly poison and surviving, but we do have record of Paul getting bit by a snake and not dying from a poisonous snake bite. Okay? And so what are we to take away from this kind of statement that this is how this will happen for believers going forward? We're to take this, that the church has been sent on mission. That's what, what, we're, what we see Jesus proclaim to them in all the other Gospels, and even in this, uh, this kind of uh, addendum to Mark's Gospel, that they're sent out with the Gospel. And there's no reason for, for us as a people to be in fear of serpents or deadly poisons or uh, demon-possessed people or any of these things because God is at work providing for us protecting us whenever he needs to. And so when it says uh, they will pick up serpents with their hands and they will drink deadly poison, that is not to say that we should go drink deadly poison for the heck of it because we, we're so boastful in our abilities. <laughs> that is not to say we should just be a bunch of snake trainers and have snakes and show our power because we can hold snakes. Okay? Nothing against snake handlers. That's fine. You can do that. I'm not going to do that. Um, but like it is not to say that as a church we should just pursue uh, these kind of dangerous activities just because, well, the Lord said we won't get hurt by this, so we're just going to do it. No, the Lord said if these things happen to you, then he will be your protector. Whether you die 
as a result, physically, or whether you do not. And he saves you miraculously, like in the case of Paul. So, I just want to say that this section we don't think is Mark's, but this section also doesn't present any problems to us in terms of, like, what we believe about Jesus or his resurrection. It actually corroborates a lot of things. And so, um, so when you see brackets at the end of the Gospel of Mark and you go like, oh my gosh, like why, why did they do this? Well, because there's debate about whether it should be in. And we can be open about those things. We don't have to be afraid and go like, oh, like, I guess the Bible is corrupted. No, it's not actually. Uh, many people saw fit very early on, actually in hundreds, uh, hundreds A.D., to go, I think we need to finish up Mark's gospel to make sure everyone gets the rest of the story because he didn't finish. That was literally the, the heart of it, right? But going back, we found more evidence that most manuscripts don't have that. Okay, there you go. Now you know what happened to verses 9 to 20. If you want to talk about handling snakes later, hit me up. Um, so what do we do with a passage like this? Um, there's a few things that I want us to walk away from as we look at this story, as we, as we recall uh, Mark's recording of, of the women coming and finding the grave empty and, and Joseph of Arimathea uh, walking through this process also. Um, so there's a few things I want us to take away and to encourage our hearts with as we reflect on this. And, and the first is this. The most unlikely of followers was listening all along. The most unlikely of followers was, was listening all along, okay? Jesus very clearly calls out the religious and, and very clearly is in opposition to the Sanhedrin. And you get this very clear portrayal in all the Gospels that Jesus has it out for the religious leaders who are inhibiting people from seeing the kingdom of God and responding to his message of repentance and belief, okay? He is very clear with them, calls them brood of vipers, right? Calls out their sin, tells them they're whitewashed tombs, okay? He is very upfront with them. And so we can get the perspective that, oh, all of those uh, religious leaders, just did, they didn't get it, it went over their head, they missed it entirely. Joseph of Arimathea was among them. He saw in his position of religious authority all that Jesus did. He heard the arguments. He saw people hit Jesus in the face with rocks before he actually went to, his, uh, to, to be actually sentenced by Rome. He saw them do a trial in the middle of the night at the high priest's house. Okay, he saw all these things and can testify to what happened to Jesus in these times. We would cast him off, right? As one who persecuted Jesus. And say, oh, Joseph of Arimathea, he's associated with those people that persecuted Jesus. No way he got it. Well, he got it. <laughs> he was looking for the kingdom of God, Mark records. He had eyes to see and ears to hear what was happening, even in the midst of going, what do we do with this guy? I guess we're stoning him now. Like, you can tell that we cannot cast some sort of generalization on a group of people and go, well, like, that group of people, they didn't get it because of whatever reason. No. Joseph was listening. Did he stand up and stop the proceedings? No, he didn't, and it probably feels horrible about that. But he was the one that went boldly to Pilate and said, I've secured a grave 
I've got clothes for him. I'm going to take the body down. And Joseph actually wasn't the only one among that crowd. John records in chapter 19, verses 38 to 32, that Nicodemus was also with him. So before we look at a group of people and go, well, these, one, these folks, they'll never get it. They'll just never understand. There's no way. They're too far. They've gone too far. Mark's gospel would say the most unlikely of followers are listening. It's interesting how Mark contrasts that in this passage, right? The sandwich, right? In the middle, you have Joseph of Arimathea, the one that actually listened. And the ones who were following closely, ministering to Jesus, actually missed the resurrection. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. They were surprised by it, okay? And so you have this story of the women who ministered to him, taken off guard by the resurrection. And Joseph of Arimathea, the one that was listening through the midst of it all. Again, that's why it's like, man, I, would, I wish we would, would have got Mark's conclusion because I know from other story, right, that there's heart change even in the women, too. I, wanted, I can't wait to meet him in heaven and go like, Mark, so what was the rest of your story? How are you going to finish that, right? Because I guarantee he wasn't going to leave the women in condemnation for not, like, getting it in this moment. I guarantee he was going to circle back and, like, talk through that process. The most unlikely of followers are, are listening all along. The second um, is this, or yeah, the second is this, that uh, those who listen closely can be caught off guard, right? It is so easy for us to kind of like get set in our routine, right? And even genuinely listen to the Lord and be be trying to catch what he's saying and catch what he's doing. And it, it is okay for us to be surprised by God. He, he's a God who would surprise those who got it the most, right? He'd surprise the women who understood. He'd surprise them. Any dudes in here try to surprise their wife about anything? It's difficult. It's very difficult, okay? In this case, they got surprised. So they, there you go. So we should, we should be careful uh, with what our expectations are in life. Like God wants to surprise us with how he is working because it's not always how we think things are working. And finally, uh, this, and we can say this in our church and every church that claims the name of Christ. He is risen. He's risen. Um... Many people look at Mark's gospel and say, oh, you know, because he didn't record the resurrection, he must not have been, must not have been truly risen because he didn't complete the work. And it's just like <laughs> crazy what kind of arguments and links people to, will go to to cast doubt on the scenario. L literally, part of what Mark does record is an angel showing up to the women and saying, he's risen just like he told you. So stop being, you know, so hypercritical of a text that you miss the whole point of the text. The point of the whole word is that Christ is crucified and he is risen. 
The power of the gospel, the power of its fulfillment, the power of uh, the kingdom being present, the power of his message that we would repent and believe is completely hinging on his defeat of death and the grave. We see it clearly in Christ's prediction of what is going to happen in Jerusalem. We see it clearly in the presence of the angel here. We see it clearly from the rest of the gospel's accounts. We see it clearly from the the message given by Paul, even earlier recorded in 1 Corinthians 15. That book is recorded prior to Mark, right? That the resurrection is essential. There's a lot of things that we can debate as followers of Jesus. A lot of disagreements we can have as brothers and sisters. We can debate creation. We can debate end times. We can debate worship styles. We can debate church structures. We can go to town all we want on differences about many of those things. But to be a follower of Jesus is to believe that Jesus raised from the dead. Without it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that our preaching is vanity. He says that we're still in our sin if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. And finally, that that we should be pitied above all men as Christians if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. Without the resurrection, uh, the best we can do is to do whatever feels right in our own eyes. Truly. Without Jesus raised from the dead, we might as well serve our own self-interest, chase success, uh, chase family legacy and national pride, or whatever else the world chases. Because without it, the message has lost all its power and all its authority. You might as well just be a good person and get along with the world around you. But because of the resurrection, we stand in the truth that death has lost its sting because the penalty of death has been paid and we are now eternally secure, not by any effort of our own, but only by the blood of Jesus. It is a message that is being challenged heavily to the readers of Mark's gospel at the time, right? The readers, original readers of Mark's gospel are under the persecution of Nero. They're being tested for their faith. They're being put to death for their belief in Jesus over and over and over again. Their message is not one that gives them favor with men. Their message is in opposition to the world, what the world says we ought to hope in or what the world says we ought to do. And Mark plainly says back to them, continue faithfully. Even that man or woman that is persecuting you might be listening. And though your flesh may perish, their soul is still on the line. View is is, his direct challenge to the church in Rome is to have a heart that cares about the Roman centurions that have you under persecution in the hope that they too might come to an eternal hope, not one that is temporary. 
the one who testifies that Jesus is the Son of God in Mark's Gospel, the cap, the, the kind of parentheses of the whole text, is a Roman centurion looking on these things. He says, surely this was the Son of God. The most unlikely of followers that does the honor of taking Jesus' body and putting it in a grave is Joseph of Arimathea. And so his challenge to the hearers of the gospel in their original context is, yeah, I know, it looks really ugly out there. You're being challenged for your faith in Jesus. And you're wondering, is it real? Is it not? I don't know. Jesus has risen. Our faith hinges on it. And the, the hope of your persecutors is in it if they will have ears to hear. And so be bold. And even though the world may challenge your beliefs and challenge you to do something different, stand firm in this one hope that Christ has been crucified and that Christ is risen. So whatever end that Mark would have told in his gospel, we know they would have instructed us to do a few things. To testify that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the scriptures of the Old Testament. That in Christ, the kingdom of God is a present reality that we are walking in. It is here. It is with us as mundane and as routine, as, as drudgery sets into our lives, it is still in our midst if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. The kingdom of God is a present reality because of the power of Christ. And finally, stand firm and proclaim the message of the good news that Jesus gives. To repent and believe. Don't worry so much about saying those words to other people. Be consumed with living those words in yourself. Repent and believe. I, the fact is, I don't have to challenge a world on sin. I, I don't have to worry about that. You know, that's Holy Spirit's job, to convict other people of sin. It's Holy Spirit's job to convict me of sin. But if I'm going to walk as one that's been changed by the death and resurrection of Christ, then I need to look at myself and myself alone and repent and belief. Mark would challenge us to take the approach of Joseph of Arimathea and either use or let go of our positions of authority to honor the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Joseph had a unique opportunity to be a follower of Jesus and go honor Christ by going before the governor of the land and saying, hey, I'd like to take care of that. And so where has God placed you? Where has he put you to be one that says, where is your hope? And you say, it's in the risen Christ. In a hope eternal that comes from my Father in heaven, in the giving of his Son on a cross and the gift of the Holy Spirit in my life. Will that be us? Will we be a people that rest in that hope and that hope alone? It is a worthy hope to stake our lives on 
because of this day that we celebrate, that Christ is risen, that he's risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the gospel of Mark and just the challenge it is to our hearts. And um, God, we pray that um, we would be a people that is aware and looking for your kingdom wherever you may place us. And God, we, we are willing, we're willing to be surprised by what you do. God, we, we testify and admit that we don't know your ways. Your ways are higher than ours. Even those that listen so closely to you in your life, we're surprised and amazed and fearful even of what happened when you raised from the dead. And so, God, we, we are willing to be surprised. We will listen closely and watch your hand. But, God, I pray that you would give us um, the resolve and the hearts to cling to the good news of Jesus, that your kingdom is present, and that we tell our hearts each and every day, to repent and believe in the risen Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.